Are you ready to study the scriptures? Yes or no? I'm so glad. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Jesus, we, we come to you asking you to fill once again. Lord, thank you that you're here and you're moving and you're working. We acknowledge you and we welcome you. Be magnified today in what we're doing. But now would you speak, God, to each one of us and cause us to be the people of God. Form us, form us and shape us. We surrender to you today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Uh, I heard a story about a couple that got married quite a while ago. A couple named Harold and Marie. And they got married, and, and they, they'd been married for a long time, and they had a 50th wedding anniversary. I mean, imagine that, 50 years. Like, that's a, that's a pretty cool thing in our society today. And so they were celebrating, and they invited family and friends and had them come over, and, and they're having a party and celebrating. And one young man, he slipped over to Harold, and he said, Harold, Harold, you, you haven't had any disagreements in your marriage how, how did you do this? Like you've had the most incredible marriage. What is the secret, Harold? Tell me how you did it. Harold said, well, it's true. Uh, after we got married, we left the ceremony, and, and we got, it, was, it was a long time ago. We got into, the, Marie had a horse-drawn carriage, and we went and got in the horse-drawn carriage, and we took off for our honeymoon. We were headed down the road, and and just a little ways down the road, the horse had stopped. It just stopped dead in its tracks, and it wouldn't move anymore. And so Marie, she got down off of the carriage and she walked around to the front of the horse and she said, that's one. And she walked back and got in and said, yeah, and they took off again. So we're going down the road and it was fine and everything was good. But just a few minutes later, the horse stopped again, dead in its tracks. And Marie, frustrated, she said, she got down off the carriage and she walked around to the front of the horse. She looked the horse in the face and she said, that's two. She went back and she got back on the carriage. Yeah, and they took off again down the road. But just a few feet down the road, the horse stopped again. The horse quit. So Marie, she got up, she got down, she walked around to the front of that horse, she pulled out a revolver, boom, shot it dead. It just fell down to the ground. And Harold was in shock. Marie, what are you doing? You can't do that. Marie, you can't just kill an animal. You can't just do whatever you feel like. And Marie looked at Harold and said, that's one. And we never had any arguments after that. Uh, we just had the best marriage ever. <laughs> now, don't you wish that you could handle some of your relationships like that? I mean, minus the killing, of course. No, not without the killing, but don't you wish that you could, that you could just do that? that and some of you actually, you do. That is how you handle conflict in relationships. It's not working out very well. Let's work on that today. But don't you just wish, I mean, almost everybody longs for good, solid, healthy, and strong relationships, but very few people, I find, really know how to do that. So many people have been wounded. So many people have been hurt by broken relationships and difficulties in their lives, and it kind of leads to this thing that you've certainly, if you haven't heard it, you've experienced it firsthand, and it's this idea that hurt people hurt people, and they're easily hurt by others. Hurt people, what they do is they hurt people, and they're easily hurt by others, and there's so much heartache. But here's the thing. Everybody reacts to relationships the way they do for a reason. There's a a reason why people react the way that they do when you interact with them. Like maybe they just came from a dysfunctional family, and they never got the tools that they needed to be able to handle relationships as they went forward. Maybe they're in a loveless marriage, and they're just frustrated, so it causes them to just blow up at work. Maybe they've just got some scars, some deeply hurtful things from their past, and they're struggling through it. Maybe they've got just open wounds from this dog-eat-dog world of the workplace and and, in their career. 
Listen, all of us have baggage and patterns that we've established through the years that are unhealthy that we need to lose. It's why we think things like catalysts are so important. Because in Catalyst, you do that. You face it head on. You kind of settle your yesterdays with Jesus and you deal with the stuff and receive healing in your heart so that you can move on. But if you don't do that, if you don't work through those experiences from your past, good relationships, they're nearly impossible. I just gotta be honest with you. It's just nearly impossible to do it. If you don't do it, you become bad friends. You kind of perpetuate the cycle that you're in. And you become those people, like the worst people, like your bad friends. You, you kind of know some of them. You've got some bad friends in your life probably through the years. You might know people like this guy. We call him Flaky Phil. Flaky Phil, he's the guy that always makes plans with you. Oh, yeah, bro, I'm there. I'm, let's hang out. It's going to be great. And then he never shows up ever. Like He makes lots of plans, but he doesn't ever come, no matter how much you ask him. Maybe you've, maybe you've met the one-upper. The one-upper, she, you, you tell a story and you say something great has happened in your life and she just has to one-up you. Oh, that's great, but I did this. And it's so frustrating, it's so annoying. Just be quiet. She just always has to one-up you on every experience that you've ever had. Or maybe you've met this person that we call the negative Nancy or the Debbie Downer. <laughs> and no matter what, when, no matter what, you, what she says or you say or anybody says, there's like this inaudible thing that just happens in the room. It just kind of goes, wah, wah. Right, like every time, no matter what, like you get a great blessing, a financial b- blessing, and she's thinking, oh, well, you better be careful of that money. You're going to end up bankrupt. What are you doing? Every storm is a possible tsunami. Like everything is just bad for this person. Maybe you've met this person. They're, they're the friend who, <laughs> they're only friends with you when they're single. Like if they're not dating somebody else, then it's best buddies. But once they find that significant other, once Bay comes along, you're out. Like, you're gone. Like, you're not even a part of the equation anymore. They don't text. They don't call. They don't do anything. You don't hang out at all, ever. Or maybe you've met this guy, the constant critic. <laughs> Handsome though he may be, no matter what you do, it's never, ever, ever good enough for them. It's kind of funny to me because kids don't really do this. Like little kids, they don't do this. My two girls, as they were growing up, they, they never met a person they didn't like. They were always just immediate friends. Like they'd meet another little girl and they'd say, hey, you want to play dollies? Yeah, sure. And for the next two hours, they're having the greatest time of their lives. Like they're just out and playing. What happens to us between the ages of five and 25? Like it just changes for most of us. We get rejected. And then fear of rejection creeps in and causes us to respond to people certain ways. We fail to learn how to give and selfishness, it creeps in. We see the difficult world that's around us and we see the hurt and brokenness and we experience firsthand the brokenness of other people and it's wounding. We live through a divorce and the, this divorce culture that we have, 50% of marriages don't work in our culture. Or people that we love, they leave us. So we've got this transient nature, especially here in the Austin area where people that we think we're gonna do life with, they end up leaving for another job and they leave us behind. Or just people are so into themselves in this consumeristic culture that we live in. Look, there's tons of reasons why relationships go south, which means that real relationships, the kind that we want to have, they're no accident. They take effort. They take energy. They take work on our parts. And so today, we're going to see what Jesus has to say about all this in his most famous message. It's the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. 
And he speaks about relationships probably more than any other topic here. And I think this is Jesus' treatise on relationships. But he's also talking about, he's describing his way of kingdom living. Because as we read through this passage, you'll find out Jesus wasn't just simply being a great teacher. And if you consider him just to be a great teacher, you're going to misunderstand him. And you're going to miss out on the things that he's trying to get across to us here. Because Jesus isn't suggesting that what we're going to read, that these are simply timeless truths about the world. It's not a philosophical analysis of the world that we live in. It's about something else that's about to happen. It's starting to happen in the world. We're not going to read just general rules for life. We're going to talk about the gospel, the good news, not just good advice. Because Jesus is launching a new era for God's people and for God's world. And we tend to think, oh, that sounds good. And one day, the things that we're going to discuss, one day, those things will come true in heaven and it'll be, it'll be beautiful. But what is heaven? Heaven is, heaven is really just God's space. It's where God is. And one day, God's space will fully overlap onto human space. But for now, they kind of interlock. They kind of touch each other. In fact, that's why we like to say, we, you and me, we are hotspots of Holy Spirit activity. We are the overlap. We are where God's space interacts with human space. That's you. And one day, that will be totally complete, and God's kingdom will be firmly established. But in the meantime, we can begin to live in that world right now. And that's what Jesus is doing here. There's a call to live in the present in a way that'll make sense in God's future, because the future, it arrived in Jesus. And these are the ways of that already here and yet still coming kingdom. This is how we get to participate in now. So I need you to get it. What Jesus is doing here is giving us a new way to be human. He's giving us the way that he designed for us really to live as human beings. So you got to get out of the idea of just good advice. It's not steps one, two, and three. Jesus is saying, this is how you participate in God's kingdom and following him in this way. We call it the Jesus way. So we're going to read it in the message because I think it helps us to hear it with fresh ears. And we're going to read a lot of scripture. So are you ready? Yes or no? All right, you're a little sleepy. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Here it goes. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. This is what he said. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever eat. What's he saying? He's saying here at the outset, if you're going to live in this kingdom, you've got to simply start with God. Like you've got to start with him. We covered this quite a bit last week, so I'm not going to go in depth here. You can go back and listen to it on the podcast, and I would encourage you to do it. But your most important relationship is the one that you have with God. We don't always start there. We don't always make that the priority. In fact, I think a lot of times we tend to just kind of get connected. We just, we make a relationship with somebody at work or we, you know, you just say, hey, uh, yeah, let's be buddies. We just kind of start a thing, go out and have coffee. And then, and then we ask God, God, would you please bless this relationship? Like be in the middle of this relationship without including him in the beginning. Or for some people, you know, if you're kind of single and ready to mingle, you, uh, you just, you swipe right. And then you say, now God, will you bless this relationship as it goes forward. 
going to let that rest for another second because that, that seemed to hit a certain group of people. <laughs> you don't start there. What he's saying is you've got to start with the most important relationship. Start with him before every other relationship. And then once you've got that relationship in order, now you order the rest of your relationships around him. And everybody, I can't tell you how important this is. And I can't tell you how many times I see it go south on people. And I've said it to students all through the years of being a youth pastor, but it works for adults too. There's a saying we always said, which was, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. I can look at the people that you hang out with closely and I can accurately predict where your life is going to head. I can predict where your life is headed just by looking at the people that you're closest with. And so we've got to make this work. We've got to make sure we put the first and foremost effort into our relationship with Jesus and then... And then it changes all the other relationships and we can move forward. And when you show me your friends, I can say, oh, you've got a good future ahead of you. Let's move on to verse seven. It says, you're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart put right. And then you can see God in the outside world. He's saying, if you're gonna live in the kingdom here and now, well, you gotta work on you. You gotta be willing to work on you. We also talked about this quite a bit last week, but your relationships can only be as healthy as you are. The greatest commandment is that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that you would love your neighbor as yourself. The question that we asked last week was, do I want you caring for me the way you care for you? Do I want you talking to me the way that you talk to you up here? In many cases, no, probably not, because the way you talk to you up here is very negative and full of doubt and condemnation. Care for others the way you care about yourself. That's what Jesus is saying to us. And we tend to focus on others when we talk about relationships. Oh, listen, yeah, I can tell you what he should do to fix his relationships. Oh, I can tell you what she should do to fix her relationship. She should stop gossiping wherever she goes. Ladies of gossip. It's easy for us. But first, we've got to look at ourselves, start inside and give Jesus access to this. Like, it's weird. People will say, you know what? I just don't really get along with people. Like you just don't really get along with them. I, my coworkers don't get along with them. My family, I don't seem to get along with any of them. Even my neighbors, like we don't really get along. Well, can I just give you a little secret? It's possible that your relationship with your neighbor and the fact that it's not going well, it could have more to do with you than it does them. Oh, that was fun to hear. <laughs> John Maxwell has this principle. Most of you know he's a leadership guru. He has this principle called the lens principle. And it says, who you are determines how you see the world. Who you are determines how you see the world. In other words, it puts lenses on you and you look through those lenses and it's how you perceive everything and it's not necessarily reality. An example is, I'm a divorced kid, right? My parents got divorced when I was eight years old. What that meant for me was, I looked through the lenses of, oh, everything that's good in my life is going to crumble one day because my parents' marriage, which I thought was stable and steady and secure, it crumbled and it taught me, it wasn't a reality, but it seemed to teach me, oh, that means everything that I ever have is, is going to crumble. And so I've lived my life just fearful of when everything's going to fall apart. And since then, Jesus has kind of removed those lenses from off of me and helped me to see, no, that's not the case, actually. Jesus is involved, and he's working and moving. He's got a good plan for your life, and you need to trust it. And I buy that. But I'm 43 years old, and I still have to pray through that thing and get those lenses off of me. I want you to know this is what we want to do at One Chapel Kyle. We want to be able to look inside. We want to give Jesus access to it. We want to give other people access to it so they can speak to you. And you've got to know this. It's okay that you have some issues. And at One Chapel Kyle, it's okay for you not to be okay. 
In fact, you're amongst good company with your admittance that you are not okay. But we're going to allow Jesus access, and we're going to allow trusted friends access to help us become better. Well, Brent, you can't expect me to be something I'm not. You can't expect me to be something that I'm not. You're right. I can't, but Jesus actually does. And he's always working on us. He's always growing us up. Yeah, well, I'm just, but I'm just me, man. I'm blunt. I'm just authentic. I just tell it like it is. I'm just straightforward. I tell it like it is. Oh, yeah, I got it. You're kind of rude and a little bit of a jerk. Like, yeah, I, I, I get it. I get it. I get it. Ooh, a little punchy in the 1130. I, get <laughs> I hate when people say that to me. Because you know what? It's, uh, who, they're saying, who cares what, how everybody feels? It's their responsibility. No, you have a responsibility to kind of help people. You're a believer in Jesus. You're a follower of God. It's your role to help people move along, not just tell them like it is and they can suck it up. That's not the way it works. Ooh, punchy. I need to go eat some food or something. Or you say, you say oh, man, I, I, I'm just shy. I'm shy, and I like to be in the background. There's no way I could ever be out front, and there's no way I could ever be bold enough to actually... No, you know what? You're missing out. You're missing the fact that God created you specifically, that he's put some things inside of you, and the Holy Spirit moving in you can give you boldness and courage and strength. You're, you're counting yourself out, and you shouldn't. Jesus wants to use you, and you can do it. You don't just need to be in the background. You can step out and be confident and secure and follow the plan he has for your life. Yes. You can do that. It is good. Jesus is always changing us, always. He's always making us more into his image if we'll just let him. And everybody, the gospel message, it depends on this process happening in our lives. The plan, the purposes that we have here as a church and as individuals going out into this city, it, it depends on us allowing Jesus access to that. Let's keep moving. We gotta go quick. Verse nine, it says, you're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight that's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. He's saying, listen, if you're going to be living in this kingdom, you've got to be a positive influence on people. Just be a solution person. Don't be a problem person. I can tell you that this is kind of Maria and I. We, we kind of do embody this in our marriage. And I won't, I won't tell you exactly which person is which. Oh, that's not cool. You already pegged me. It's true. I'm the problem person. She's the solution person. Like we went to Disney World with our family and Disney World is a serious thing for us people. We got a schedule, we got rides, we got printouts, we got to follow the plan so we can get to everything on time. And so we were in the animal kingdom and we had these fast passes to get on this ride, Expedition Everest. And, and it, it, we, were too, we were too early. So our fast passes were for an hour from now and it was gonna screw up the rest of our night. And so we had to, we had to do something about it. So Maria said, well, hey, let's just go over there and I know it's an hour away, but let's just ask them if they'll let us in. And I said, Nope, that won't work. They're not going to do that. There's no way that they've got a system. They've got a plan. They've got a structure. It's embarrassing for us to walk over there and say, hey, could we just get in early? No, that's ridiculous. And she said, could we just try it? I know, she's so sweet. Could we just, could we just try it? I probably wouldn't have been so sweet. Said, could we just try it? Well, pff, oh, whatever. Okay, yeah. I'll just wait until you, you get proved wrong. And so we marched, we marched over there. And she walked up and said, hey, our tickets are for an hour from now, but could we, oh yeah, come on in, welcome to the Magic Kingdom. And I was like, just ridiculous, just ridiculous. And we have these moments in our marriage, and I'm, people, I'm a work in progress. Jesus is working on me. John Maxwell, he has got another principle that I think is so important, it's called the Bob Principle, and it says, if Bob's always a problem with others, Bob's probably the problem. <laughs> so, so listen, you got to ask yourself, uh, what do you like at work? 
Are you positive? Or are you a bummer? Are you uplifting? Or are you a cynic? Are you negative? Or are you encouraging? What kind of person are you? Listen, it's easy to be the cynic. That comes naturally to most of us. We just easily fall into that role. It takes effort to be positive and look for solutions. And can I just tell you, cynicism, it doesn't actually make you an expert at anything. Honestly, it just kind of makes you annoying. It just makes it so that nobody really wants to share their ideas or talk with you if you live in cynicism. Don't do it. Let's be a source of new ideas and solutions. Everybody, we're people of faith. That's what we do. We see things that are bigger than us, and we do those things through Jesus. Like, that's who we are. Let's be those kinds of people. So why don't you try this this week? Go to your office, go to your family, and just try this experiment. It's called the 30-second rule. And in every conversation, the first 30 seconds, just say something encouraging. I should clarify, about the other person, not yourself. <laughs> just say something encouraging to them. Just in the first 30 seconds, just find something about them. Oh, you know, I am quite a blessing to your life. No, about them. About them and encourage them. Try it and see what happens in your relationships. We meet people, we usually want to make ourselves look good. And I'm just telling you, right here, let's not do that. And one chapel, Kyle, is a perfect place for us to begin to practice this. But people are like, oh, well, but this is the church. Every conversation should be perfect. Oh, good grief. You're living in a dream world, man. No, this is where it goes south sometimes, but it's where we're creating a family of God that we believe in, where we say, hey, no matter what happens, I'm willing to work this out with you. I'm willing to forgive. I'm willing to extend grace. I'm willing to move forward with you. That's the kind of thing that we should be practicing around here so that then we can take it out there. Got to go faster. Verse 10, you're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. Yay. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies to you, about you or to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even. <laughs> for though they don't like it, I do. And all of heaven applauds. And know that you're in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. He's saying if you're going to live in this kingdom, you respond to negative people with confidence and conviction. That's what the kingdom is like. You respond to negativity with confidence and conviction. Look, not everybody that you meet is going to be your BFF through the years. That's just not realistic. And there might be times even when people resist you, when they dislike you, when they push back on you. That's okay. Just let it drive you deeper into the kingdom of God. Let it drive you deeper into his presence and trust him to help you respond with the right heart and the right attitude. Some people might even reject you because of your belief in Jesus, and that's okay. Jesus says, you're blessed, and I'm with you when that happens. And you can, everybody, you can respond with confidence and conviction when that happens. You don't have to spend, you don't have to respond in arguments. You can respond with confidence and conviction even on Facebook. I know you don't think so. I know you, got, I th you think you've got to jump in and mix it up. But I'm telling you, because of Jesus, you can respond with confidence and conviction. Look, you don't have to be a doormat. You don't have to let everybody roll over you. But you do have to pick up a towel and go and serve everybody that you can. Because that's what Jesus modeled for all of us. Amen. To take care of people and respond with confidence and conviction. Matthew 5, 13, Jesus says, let me tell you why you're here. Oh, I love this part. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of the earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. 
God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this. As public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to be open with God, the generous Father in heaven. I love this. He's saying if you're going to be in this kingdom, when you live in that kingdom, you are salt and light. Be salt and light. Now, Jesus is using two amazing metaphors in this passage. And we, in our current context, we kind of think, oh, yeah, I get it. No, I totally understand this. I mean, salt makes things taste good. Uh, light, you know, shows things. I, I get it. I understand this completely. But no, if, if you just breathe through it quickly, you'll miss what Jesus is trying to say. And realize that he's talking here. He's saying, when he says you, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. That you is plural. It's not singular. It applies to us. It's like saying use, or here in Texas we might say y'all. Y'all are the salt of the earth. Y'all are the light of the world. I've been working on that for three months, three months. He says, be salt. What does that mean? Notice Jesus didn't say, hey, you should be salt, or you must be salt. What Jesus said is, you are the salt of the earth. How would a first century audience hear and understand this? Well, they would understand that salt was used primarily for three things. Number one, it was a preservative. Salt is a preservative. Salt would be worked into meat so that it would slow down its decay. It would keep it from spoiling as quickly. Now, we don't use this much anymore because now we have this magic frozen cold box in our kitchens that I open up and it just gives me things that I want. It's called a refrigerator and it's wonderful. I open it up and magically it's stocked with things that my wife has hardworkingly put there and so I should probably do more work around the house. But thank you for that encouragement. (laughs) I have repented of my... I'm not going to defend myself. Okay. <laughs> What's Jesus saying here? He's saying he wants his people to be in, out in every area and sphere of our culture. And he wants us there for what purpose? To slow down the rate of societal decay. That's who you are. You are out there in the world to slow down the rate of societal decay, to preserve what is good. And what Jesus is doing to expose things and cause them to come to light, things that are wrong or unjust. Because you're there, your school should be better. Because you're there, your workplace should be better. Because you're there, your neighborhood, your community, it should be different. You're a preservative in the earth. Salt is also a disinfectant, and they would have understood this. You put it on a wound, you put it on an open wound to clean it or to prevent infection. And that would create conditions for the wounds to heal. When you're salt in the world, that's what happens. You become somebody who allows for the conditions that God to work so that people can be healed. We just saw a beautiful picture of it happen from One Chapel Lake Travis. There are two people in One Chapel Lake Travis that are kind of going through it right now. There's a woman named Nancy Pickens, and she's going through another bout of cancer. And there's a little girl, I think she's five or six, and her name is Lily. And she's been diagnosed with leukemia, I think it is. And so her family is reeling from that diagnosis and trying to figure out what they should do. And so at One Chapel Lake Travis, last Sunday, they had some food and some barbecue. They invited people to come and stay during group Sunday, and they encouraged them, and they they did a fundraiser. And in that fundraiser, on one Sunday morning, they raised $24,000 to be able to give to those two families to help them. Isn't that great? Yeah, Samina, come on. I think that's good. 
Now, that's just a, that's a practical, that's a practical need. Like they took care of a practical thing, which is great. But you know what else they're doing? They're going to the hospital and they're connecting with those people. When mom and dad don't know what to say or what to do, they're there alongside them praying and seeking the face of God and, and bringing encouragement to them. Like they're really bringing healing to those families. This is what we're called to do, you and me. You can be salt and help move toward those that are hurting in your life and bring them to healing. We find lots of people in our world that have been wounded by church. They've been wounded and had some bad experience, some horrible religious experience, and they said, I'm never going back there. I'll never step foot in a church again. And I get that, although I disagree, because they'll say, the church really wounded me, and I don't necessarily buy that. I think that the church is the body of Christ, and I'm never going to be her enemy, and I'm never going to speak ill of her. I actually think the reality is people in the church hurt people. (laughs) People in the church cause wounding. But I'm not going to let the fact that somebody wounded me put me up against the body of Christ. I'll never be in that position. But you are in the great position to be able to step forward into somebody's life who's been wounded and provide healing and restoration and maybe even a way for them to come back into the family of God. You can do that. Do you know how most people come to Jesus? It's not from a church service. It's from you, a follower of Jesus, inviting them and connecting with them and making them a part of your life. You and I can create the necessary conditions for people to be healed, and it's what we're called to do. And then thirdly, salt is just like it is today. It's a seasoning. Like they just use it like we did to make stuff taste good. I love it in the morning on my scrambled eggs, a lot of salt, a lot of hot of pepper. Oh, man, get an English muffin and slap some butter all over that guy. Wow, I am really hungry. I love it, but it's the effect of what salt does that I think makes this so interesting. When you eat salt, what does it do? What does it do to you? It makes you thirsty. Like it causes, it makes you have thirst. Like I, I need something to drink. If, if we really are salt in our communities, it should make people thirsty for the things of God. It should make people thirsty for more of the presence of Jesus. The presence of Jesus in you should, they come into contact with you and it just makes them thirsty for more of that. I don't know what it is about you. I don't know what it, but every time I'm around you, I just feel something. I just feel like I need more of that thing. They don't have a clue, but you do. It's the presence of Jesus inside of me. You can do that. Now, salt can lose its saltiness. And how does it lose its saltiness? Well, it, what happens is it, it loses flavor when it gets mixed with other chemicals. And what happens is that the salt gets diluted by outside other influences that get in there, and it just kind of dilutes it, and it makes it not any good anymore. And it's really what you have to do is just kind of throw it out because it doesn't work. It doesn't do the things that you're supposed to do. So that's what Jesus is trying to get at here. And so I think it's so important. He's saying salt can lose its saltiness. Don't be like that. Don't get thrown out on the garbage heap. Don't tone it down. Don't tone down the gospel. Don't just try to strip the story and make it more relevant so that people can listen to it. Don't do that. We've watched people through the years, even denominations that have said, we're gonna, we're gonna just take this out and try to make it more relevant so people can stomach it. You know what's happened to those denominations? Through the years, they're now looking for people to rent their buildings because they're empty. Listen, I get it. I know. I know that the words of Jesus, they're offensive. I know that they're pretty brutal. I know that they can be hard to swallow. When you start talking about death and crucifixion and dying to yourself and surrendering your life, those kinds of things, it's not popular in our culture today to talk about those kinds of things. 
I just watched it in Catalyst One on Tuesday night. Those poor blessed people. If you were there, you, you experienced this. But they came in and they're excited. They're so they're they're like, oh, Catalyst! I'm so excited to be a Catalyst. I can't wait. And so they're going to learn some things and have a great semester. And I come in there and I say, if you want to be a disciple, you gotta die. And they were like, oh, <laughs> what did I get myself into? You gotta surrender your life. You gotta let Jesus be in charge, and you don't get to be in charge anymore. And this is what it's like to be a disciple. You shoulder your cross and you carry it. I mean, people are like, oh my gosh, what am I supposed to do with this? This is what we're trying to do around here, everybody. We can't strip the gospel of its power and try to make it more palatable. We just gotta live it the very best that we can and help people be salt to them. Jesus says also, you need to be a light. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill can't be hidden. Like just be a light where people can see and it exposes darkness in their lives and people can gather like a city on a hill, a traveler walking through in the difficulty of night. Imagine traveling in the ancient world and it's so hard to get where you're going. You feel like you're gonna get jumped at every turn and you're headed towards it. And then over the horizon, you see this city, oh, this thing. You know, oh, I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna be okay. That's you. A city on a hill that can't be hidden. This is what Jesus wants to do with you. Let's do the last one. Here we go, Matthew 5, 38. It says, here's another old saying that deserves a second look. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Is that gonna get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't head back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. If someone drags you into court and sues for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. And if someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Live generously. You're familiar with the old written law, love your friend, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer. For then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone regardless. The good and bad, the nice and nasty. All you do, if all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is, grow up. <laughs> I encourage today. What I'm saying is, grow up, your kingdom subjects. Now just live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives toward you. What's he saying as we close today? He's saying if you're going to live in the kingdom, what happens in the kingdom is you love your enemies and you grow. Now, this is not easy. And you've got to think about the definition that they probably had for an enemy because it's probably different than the one that you have. Like their definition, definition of enemy, it would have to do with raids and invasions and wars. They'd have a history of people being dragged off to exile like, that's what they would be thinking. In fact, they're living under Roman occupation. Your enemy is mostly the guy who takes the last bagel from the office every morning. You're like, every single time! Can't stand this guy. Or it's the person that drives in the left lane on I-35, and they just won't get over. Yeah, there it is. It got real. That's an enemy right there. No, I know that many of you have enemies that it's much worse than any of that, but what Jesus is offering is a new kind of justice. It's a creative and healing and restorative justice. And it's better than eye for eye and tooth for tooth. It's better to just have no vengeance at all. And what it provides for you is a creative way for you to move forward reflecting the love of God to other people. 
He says, look, if someone backhands you across the cheek, that's a horrible insult in that culture. It meant you're inferior. You're like a slave. You're nothing. You're like a little child to me. You're like a, an insignificant woman. Like, a, I don't care about what's happening with you. And Jesus says, no, if that happens to you, just offer him the other cheek. You can hit me if you like, but this time you're going to do it as equals. And it changes the dynamic of what's happening there, and it shows something to that person. He says, in your, if you're in court and a powerful enemy is suing you and he wants the shirt off your back, that's fine. Gift wrap your coat and give that to him too. Now, this is a world where most people only wore those two garments. They had like a shirt and a cloak, and that was about it. And he says, gift wrap it. Just give it right there in the courtroom. Just give it both to them. And just stand there shirtless and saying, look, man, this is actually what you're doing. Shame him. Show him this is what you're doing to the poor people that are around you. This is the result of your actions. And cause that person to go, wait a minute. What's happening here? Do you see it? It's a creative way forward. Or the third example, Roman soldiers said they had the right to force civilians to carry their equipment one mile. And there was a strict law, and it forbade going any more than that. You couldn't go two miles. And Jesus says, turn the tables on them. Don't fret. Don't fume. Don't go home at night and say, oh, I'm so mad. Babe, this Roman soldier, he got me again and made me carry his stuff for a mile. Now I'm late to dinner. It's terrible. Don't do that. Flip the tables on them. Copy your generous God. Just go a second mile with him. You walk to one and say, hey, I got this stuff. Let's go another mile and take it another mile and shock him. (laughs) He'll be shocked. He'll be astonished. And he might even be a little scared thinking, what if my commanding officer finds out what just happened here? You see it. It just opens up new possibilities. It opens up new avenues. And this is the greatest test of our maturity. It's the greatest measure of our growth. What will we do when people hurt us? How do you respond to people who mistreat you? You can respond with maturity and love, and you can grow into wholeness in Jesus. Or you can respond with bitterness, that's still an option, and you can wither away into isolation and selfishness. That's not what we want to be.